0: Welcome to Moving Medicine, a podcast by the American Medical Association. Today's episode was produced in collaboration with the Permanente Docs Chat Podcast, featuring Dr. Sanjay Desai, the AMA's chief academic officer. Here's the host of Permanente Docs Chat, family medicine physician, Dr. Alex McDonald.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Permanente Docs Chat. Uh, thank you so much for joining wherever you may be listening, watching, or or tuning in from. From I'm your host, Alex McDonald. I practice family and sports medicine here uh, as part of the Southern California Permanente Medical Group at KP. And I am very excited to welcome you to a very special uh, podcast today. This is our first uh, Permanent Day Docs, Chad Dunn, in collaboration with the American Medical Association. This will be a monthly podcast co-presented by the Permanent Day Federation and the American Medical Association. So I'm very excited uh, to welcome our host. Or excuse me, I'm, I'm your host. Our guest today. Um, it, it's, it's July, and new residents all over the country are starting their residency, and people are moving from junior residents to senior residents or fellows. And today we'll be sp- speaking about GME with the American Medical Association. Association Chief Academic Officer and Group Vice President of Medical Education, Dr. Sanjay Desai. So Dr. Desai, welcome so much to the podcast and thank you for being here.
0: Thanks so much, Dr. McDonald. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. Wonderful.
1: Uh, for anyone out there listening live on the on the webinar, uh, if you have questions, please drop them in the chat, uh, excuse me, in the Q&A, and we'll get to as many as we can. This is going to be pretty quick. It's about 20 minute discussion. So get your questions in early. Um, and we're just going to jump right in here. So Dr. Desai, in your own words, tell us, tell us who you are and what you do. Thank you.
0: Actually, GME is my home, so this is a great topic to to be part of. um, I'm, as you said, the chief academic officer at the AMA, and I came here about a year and a half ago, but I spent um, the last 12 years as a program director for internal medicine at Johns Hopkins, where I was a professor of pulmonary and critical care medicine, so I still do clinical work there, um, and all of my professional activity really was in gme and and july 1st was the day of the year that uh, <laughs> that was most important to me um so it really is a you know being in july is a is a celebratory month i think in many different ways here at the ama uh dr Maldon, we do we do four main things uh in medical education we we look after some policy so there's mm-hmm. a lot of policy that that helps shape regulation and accreditation and training in GME. Um, We actually are the co-sponsors also of the LCME. There's a whole alphabet soup, I think, that probably people are aware of, but LCME is an important one. That's the organization that accredits MD-granting medical schools in the country. And so we're a co-sponsor of the LCME. Um, We also uh, have a large uh, effort in innovation. And that's really where, where much of our work and creativity uh, and I'd love to get into that uh, a, a bit more. And then we, um, in addition to that, we we look after equity, diversity, and belonging and try to promote that as, as much as we can uh, as well. And so there are multiple multiple areas. The last one, which is not GME, is we actually look after the, the CME credit system as well uh, mm. in the country. So uh, those are all AMA professional activity credits that we, uh, physician reward activity credits that, that people seek in CME.
1: So really, it's it's a whole it's a whole continuum of education from from undergraduate medical education to graduate medical edu- education to continuing medical education. And the AMA is, is doing such phenomenal work across that whole spectrum because, uh, you know, we want to train good doctors and we want to make sure those doctors stay up to date and continue to practice the evidence based medicine uh, that our country needs, quite frankly.
0: Now, I, I like the way you said it, because we too often think about medical education in compartments and those compartments don't talk to each other very well. And that leads to these really abrupt transitions. One, you know, we're I know going to focus on GME, but once you getting into it is abrupt and then getting out of it, as you know, uh, is very abrupt as well. We're trying our best to make it a seamless continuum of lifelong learning.
1: Yeah, that makes perfect sense. One thing as many of you on the listening know that I'm one of the faculty members for our our Family Medicine residency and our Sports Medicine fellowship here, um and I'm I, one of the one of my things I always impress upon my residents is the fact that you're always going to be at, if you ever get to the point where you feel like you don't have to look things up or you or you feel like you know everything, then something has gone horribly wrong and that you should continue to be learning and continue to look things up and, and learn for the rest of your career and that's really what what is Probably, think I think most challenging, but also most rewarding about a career in medicine.
0: I absolutely agree. I mean, I think that it's it's hard to find a group of people more eager to learn than mm-hmm. physicians, and I think one of the reasons they seek after the the educational model is because you're curious. And I think we've done a pretty good job, unfortunately, of making it hard <laughs> to continue <laughs> the, the joyful learning that that yep. we sought after when we went into this. So that's really one of our aspirations. Dr. McDonald is to try to create and bring back that joy of learning and make it easier for us to do that. I mean, there's no time like like now when with the advent and and dissemination of of AI and Mm -hmm. generative models of AI that I think remind us that we can't possibly know all of this. We're going to have to continue to learn. So hopefully you can bring that energy to
1: this. Exactly. Well, let's, let's, you mentioned innovation. um, And so let's, let's kind of start there. Um, You know, graduate medical education has been growing and evolving. Um, You know, there was duty hour restrictions about 10 years ago, which sort of threw everything on its head. Um, But there've been multiple other changes and maybe a little bit more incremental since then. Um, So tell me what are are some of the the most innovative changes within GMA in the last couple of years? And then also what might be coming in the future or in the near future?
0: No, that's great. I think we're finally uh, making progress, and we need to make much more against what really matters in GMA. I think if, you think if you take a step back, the entire purpose of a medical education system is to produce a physician workforce that can care for our patients, mm-hmm. families, and communities.
1: Yep. But the system that we
0: have is a time-based model. We say that if you go through four years of medical school and you go through X number of years of residency as deemed by, appropriate by the accrediting bodies, then you are competent. And we know that that is not true. There are data from multiple specialties to demonstrate that that is not true. And I think if you, the simple way I explain it is if you ask any patient, what would they rather have? Someone that's gone through X number of years of schooling or someone that is competent and caring for you. And I think that's an obvious answer. So we need to move Dr. McDonald to a competency-based model. And there are many barriers to that, but that's where innovation is occurring. There's innovation in the UME space, the medical school space, and there are multiple schools that have gone and started to implement competence-based medical education. In fact, some like OHSU have been graduating the the vast majority of their students before four years because they have a rigorous competency-based model. Uh, it, It gets much trickier when you get to GME. So residency you know as is this dual role of being a learner and continuing to to train and being a physician caring for patients so there's a workforce dependency in residency that is very difficult in our current system to extricate mm-hmm. from yep. the learning and training role of a of a resident it makes it hard to 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 implement cbme competency based medical education but you know you asked about innovation we are we are funding multiple grants in, in multiple areas. One of our priority areas is competency-based medical education. And we were doing that. We did it in UME. And now we have a a pilot in GME. So at Mass General Brigham, uh, we, there's a group there that is implementing competency-based medical education in residency programs. And they're starting with pathology. And the Mm -hmm. goal is to uh, develop a competency model, assess against it. And then what they call promote in place that, that, uh, uh, get circumvents this this barrier of workforce because you keep them employed uh, even right. though they go forward, and so that's still nascent in its evolution. There's another model at Stanford with emergency medicine using competency based medical education. So so the innovation is occurring, yeah. But it yep. is it is hard because of the inertia, because of admin. But I would say Dr. McDonald, the biggest reason it's hard is because of culture. We right. need to change the culture that in which we immerse these trainees uh, so that we can do this more effectively.
1: Yeah. I think that's such an interesting point about um, putting, applying the the individual learner to a curriculum versus applying the curriculum to the individual learner. Um, I always like to think about here in, 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 in family medicine, we do lots of different things. We do some procedure-based things. We do some minor procedures. We do more kind of uh, 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 cognitive-based education and learning. And it's just so interesting to see different residents Progress at different rates, and some of them are very good with their technical skills. Maybe not so good with some of the uh, more kind of cognitive uh, uh, functions. And and everyone sort of has a different place along that spectrum of the multiple different aspects of which we we expect people to to have skills when they when they graduate. Um, and so, rather than sort of forcing the curriculum to fit the in, excuse me, forcing the person to fit the curriculum, really fitting the curriculum to the individual learner feels like that would be a much more um, Efficient way to train, but also a much more uh, enriching way that really meets with some of the, some of the, what we know in the science about education and and adult learning, um, as opposed to sort of saying, here's what you have to know, read this book.
0: I think it's exactly right. So we, we, we've developed this model talking about barriers to lifelong learning. And, and you've just highlighted one, which is that you, you have this one size fits all model or, and actually not or randomness. So in, in medical school, the, Two people, one who majored in biochemistry, one who majored in public policy are sitting together in a chemistry class and they are getting different things after that, that time in class. And then similarly in residency, as you know, it, the schedules are random. They're not mm-hmm. based on what people mm-hmm. have learned, at least for 99 percent of training programs in the country. They're based on this random shuffle of priorities of when people can be where. And so um, it leads, at, at, you know, the goal is to get bring back and, and, and fuel and feed that curiosity. But uh, so you want people to learn continuously uh, that what happens because of randomness and one size fits all is that they have these decelerations in their development because you're mm-hmm. in a, in an environment where you're not, it's not meeting the need that you have. Right. Um, and that becomes uh Frustrating, and it becomes uh, less fun. And so, how do we uh, how do we make that slope continuous? And so, one way to do that and from an innovation perspective is what we're really heavily investing in now is called precision education. So it's it's bringing the right education to the right person mm-hmm. at the right time. And mm-hmm. and Dr. Bernal, that was really hard to do before because we didn't have the data and technology to do it well. But right. if you think uh, all, many kids are using Khan Academy now, right? That's yep. an opportunity for learner agency in their learning. It's what they need at this time and it develops competency and you move forward. And so bringing those types of models and to medical education is is one of our aspirations. And we're working with a number of schools that are that are actually moving pretty fast in this space. So it's pretty fun.
1: And I imagine one thing that we're really thinking about right now, and I know the AMA is doing a ton of work here, and so is Permanente Medicine, is just, you know, wellness, physician wellness, resident wellness. And and if you're being forced to do menial tasks which don't meet your need, which don't feed your curiosity, and are what's the opposite of precision, lack of precision education. I imagine that's a recipe for, for, for burnout and for, you know, all the other in, in mental health uh, consequences there which really don't help, help anyone. It just, it just creates more, more burden and more work and more burnout in our, our, our students and our, our residents and our, our attendings also, quite frankly.
0: I think, and you link two really important notions that we're thinking about together here. One is, and they, they're interdependent. One is burnout. I mm. I would and I think many consider this an existential threat to yep. our profession. And the, the story I, I often say is the number of colleagues of mine who are physicians who tell me that they hope their children do not pursue medicine is mm-hmm. increasing. And that is, I mean, I, I feel that viscerally <laughs> when, yep. you, when you think about that. What a tragic situation that we're in. And that's fueled by burnout, which is fueled by the admin and all the other work environment circumstances that we're in. So we really need to get to the root cause of why people feel the way that they feel, the moral injury, the dissatisfaction, the detachment, all of those things. Mm-hmm. And so we are doing work in this space. In fact, we started about 10 years ago developing a uh, the what we call the third pillar of of medical education, health system science. So there's yep. there's clinical sciences, there's basic science, and there's health system science. And and actually we're part we we just ought, we just provided a grant to uh, the Bernard Tyson school yep. in Southern California, who are implementing an HSS curriculum through medical school. And this links to burnout because one of the reasons that people feel some of what they feel is because they are not empowered to help think about how do I improve the system all the forces on it. And so thinking through health system science, we hope is starting to address upstream Mm -hmm. one of the reasons that people feel the way they feel when they're practicing medicine. And there are a number of the mental health. So we're a, we were strong advocates for the Lorna Breen legislation that just came through Congress, trying to take all of the stigmatization of mental health off of credentialing and off of licensing. Mm -hmm. Um, That's another important Step that again is upstream and administrative. Uh, thinking through prior off, and all these of these are not necessarily GME things, but just thinking through what are the drivers of burnout and how do we again study them and move upstream to try to mitigate them. I i think this is this has to be a priority for everybody who's around physicians right now, whether they're medical school, residents, or in health systems or independent practices.
1: Yeah, that's so so true. I got a chance to actually meet um uh, Dr. Lorna Breen's um, brother-in-law actually at a conference this spring. It was absolutely incredible. So I completely agree with you that we have to reduce those barriers and those things where we ha- have a lack of autonomy and self-control. And I think bringing it back to GME, who has less sort of autonomy over their own schedule than than a resident sometimes, especially a brand new resident who is in this very kind of chaotic, high pressured world where you know let's be honest, lives are at stake. Um, and how can we help? um provide some sort of autonomy or at least sense of locus of control which we know is a recipe for burnout and and, and challenges with our residents do you have any thoughts rega- regarding yeah, no, that I think
0: that's, that that's so on the minds of so many and i think probably most people listening are aware of the the increase in unionization that's occurring across the country i think that's one of the um outcomes uh of of what you just described this yep. lack of power this lack of agency mm-hmm. and so i think we need to think through how how is it how is gme structured and again i we talked at the beginning uh dr mcdonald about the workforce dependency of residency and i think yep. that's where that that's where the conflict occurs conflict occurs because we we want to train and we want and i think everybody fully intends and genuinely believes we want them to learn and that's why they're here but we have a certain number of physicians that need to take care of a certain number of patients, and we mm-hmm. need to do that 24-7, 365 days a, a year. So how do we create more effective interprofessional models, or how do we increase the number of GME spots? I know that's one of the conversations that's been happening for literally decades, and yep. I think will we'll continue and needs to continue. So we need to change the structure, the numbers of people, and the way that we deliver care so that we can reduce the workforce dependency so that we can actually create the environment in which someone can be healthy and continue to learn and take ownership of their patients and feel like they're developing and all of those things that we want them to do. And, and that's a really complicated ask. I mean, we're, we're a country where we're self-governed. We are a country where uh, the GME programs are, are dispersed geographically mm-hmm. in structure. There's community-based, there's university-based. They're funded by different mechanisms, most by by Medicare, as you know, but but also by other mechanisms as well. So it is a fragmented system that's hard to have one solution for. I mean, if it was easy, obviously we would have figured this out sooner. Right. But I I would I would say along with you that the the need to figure this out is urgent. And so I think that starts in exemplar programs, programs that are doing it well, and we look at how they're doing it, and you see how the residents are are experiencing their training? And Mm -hmm. what did they do to allow and enable that to occur? And and I think it's going to be complicated. It's going to be um, probably uh, related to that particular environment, but there's got to be lessons that you can take from there and then scale, replicate, reproduce so that we can spread uh, the wisdom of that and make it better for, um, for generalizably better for residents in the country.
1: Yeah, so so just like healthcare in general, it turn, turns out that GME is complicated also. <laughs> um, well, it, it's funny. I so uh, many of you know. I actually I did my intern year at, at a very large uh, academic institution that really relied very very heavily on their resident workforce, and then I came actually here to, to Kaiser Permanente and Fontana, where the residency is is not not the main driver of the workforce in the hospital. And it was a very different environment and a very different, uh, learning experience for me. And, you know, I got things out of both systems. I'm not going to sugarcoat it, but one was maybe a little bit more, um, gentle than than the other. Let's, let's put it that way. So, um, your, your point of just on that
0: point, I think that it's, um, you you use the word gentle, which is what I'm um, reacting to a little bit, because I think that, um, Often people have in their minds certain attributes of, of gentle or mm-hmm. healthier or less burnout. But I don't think they're always what we think that they are. Um, so so for example, work hours comes up often. Yep. And um so what we know is when you look at the UK or when you look at other countries that have far less work, much more strict work hour regulations, mm-hmm. the burnout is equal or higher right. than this environment. And so uh, certainly, ours play a role, mm-hmm. but I think that we quickly jump to one attribute or another. And I think we need to step back and say, How do we, for me, and when I talk with residents often, it is that what, what they are usually seeking is the meaning and the purpose right. that drew yes. them to the profession yes. and working. The hours that they work and becoming fatigued takes it, takes that away. That right, corrodes exactly. that experience. So that is that is one of the factors for sure. But I, I think it's hard to say we, or I think it's not possible to, to make a linear relationship from any one mm-hmm. attribute and say yep. there, if we fix, if we change this one, this will bring, because what we need to do is we need to bring back meaning. We right. need to bring back the experience that I think you and I had when we were able to spend time with our patients mm-hmm. and actually get to know them and learn about them. And you're not, I, I pre rounded every day in the hospital uh, at the bedside because that's where the paper chart was. And I'm not advocating that we go back to paper charts, but in the world of EMR, how do we bring that experience back? How do we bring back the time that we spent with patients so that we can get the joy of knowing them? And feeling the reward of helping them. And so I think that, so that's not as simple as ours. It's not as simple as the, what food is available. All of those things matter. Absolutely. That's the work environment. But what I think is core and what we need to figure out is how do we get them with their patients again? That's what we need to figure out.
1: Yeah, I I completely agree with you, and perhaps perhaps gentle wasn't the best word, but but having more meaning. So I completely agree with you that it's about that connection and that meaning, and that's why you went into the profession in the first place. Um, so this has been great. We, we're almost out of time. I do want to ask a quick question here about uh, you mentioned this earlier in our current gme system are we are we ad- adequately creating and preparing the physician workforce that we need for our country both both now and in the future as as the baby yeah. boomers are getting older and older
0: that, that's such an important question we again we are a self-governed profession so we do not have a national blueprint for a physician workforce mm-hmm. so because of that we are not uh, currently nor do i think if you look at the pipeline we are not anytime in the near future going to have a physician workforce that's capable for care, capable for caring for all of our patients and communities It's just the reality of having a self-governed workforce that that has incentives that are as they are mm-hmm. and and so um, you know how do we how do we manage that? So I think we need to think through you know our, we have to go way upstream well before GME you know who are we who are we recruiting into the profession? Mm-hmm. what incentives are? are in the system for where what specialty they choose, and, and this gets into remuneration, it gets into uh, geography, obviously, it gets into debt. All of those things, I think, play a role. So uh, again, very complicated, but I think we need to start to imagine or have conversations around, this is the need for the country. How do we create the right incentives for people to pursue career choices That'll that position us better to care for for our population, particularly as it ages, because right. we're going to have a different population in twenty years than we have today. Um, and so, so this this is equally urgent. It's just that it the effects won't be seen for some time.
1: Right. Wonderful. Um, there was a question here in the chat that I want to get to as well, too. And what um what do we wish that undergraduate medical students knew before entering graduate medical education residency training programs? Is there anything like any pearls or wisdom or anything specific that you've heard f- through your work?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I I hope, I hope what we can let them know is that we are going to create a system that lets them care for patients and get and meet the aspirations that they have for, for pursuing this field. In terms of what, what they should know, you know in terms of advice. I think that um, hopefully we're moving away from uh, a system where they have to get uh, this mark and that mark and this yeah. checkbox and that checkbox, yeah. and they can actually take a step back and hopefully have the maturity to reflect upon themselves and, and think about what do I need to learn? How do I need to develop to better care for patients. For for me, it would have been, you know, spending more time with communication or it may have been more time with underserved or more communities. You know, those those skills that really, when you think about who do I want caring for me or my loved one Mm -hmm. and what is the distance between that archetype and me, that's what I would tell undergrads. Try to develop yourself in those spaces too. But it's hard to say that because the system is set up in a way that drives them to this score and that score, because that's right. the gate you got to exactly. pass this gate. So we need to, we need to work on the gates. Those of us that have some ownership around the gates need to work on the gates. But that's the advice I would give them, and I hope we enable um, a process uh, and environment to let them pursue that.
1: Yeah, well, that's so so well said. Every every system is. Perfectly designed for the result that it gets, right? And uh, here we are. Well, last question here, and, and uh, then we'll wrap up. Tell us what what makes you most proud to be a physician and an AMA member.
0: Oh, thank you so much. I think um, what makes me most proud to be a physician is just doing what we're able to do. I think uh, mm-hmm. it is. I mean, every day. I think every day I care for patients. I am reminded of what a privilege. It is to do this, and I I know many people in many different professions, and I don't know anyone who has this privilege. So I feel very proud that we're able uh, to help people uh, people that need help, and I think that's wonderful. And I'm most proud of being an AMA member because uh, they are also mission driven mm-hmm. to support physicians and and help them care for patients to try to make the the work that we do the. The goals that we have easier to accomplish, to get rid of these barriers, to be, um, to eliminate anyone else in that exam room, (laughs) you know, there's so much encroachment uh, Mm -hmm. as we've seen so much this year from uh, legislation that's passed or Supreme Court rulings that have come out. And and so they are uh, tireless in their mission and activity and advocacy to bring back that relationship between a physician and their patient. And so- um, that makes me
1: proud. That is just the perfect ending for today's chat. Thank you so much. I feel like we just scratched the surface. We'll have to have you back again sometime. I Uh, very much enjoy that. Well, thank you so much for Dr. Desai for joining us today, sharing your expertise uh, and your insights.
0: Thank you very much. Subscribe to the Permanente Docs Chat podcast to never miss an episode or register to take part in upcoming live chats. Visit permanente.org slash AMA Docs Chat.